every generation there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. Welcome to Conversations with Dead People. I'm your host, Paul Smith, and each week, give or take, I'm joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia, authors and educators, to discuss two to four episodes of Joss Whedon's critically acclaimed series, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and its spin-off series, Angel. I've been a fan of both shows since their original runs, and I've spent many years talking to lots of people about them, but I've somehow never done a full rewatch, so this will be my first time going back through all the way from the beginning. I am familiar with the story and where everything's going, but my guests are likely going to be educating me at least as much as they will be our listeners, probably more so. And talking with me this time is uh, James South, Professor of Philosophy and Associate Dean for Faculty, Klingler College of Arts and Sciences at Marquette University. Also editor for both uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Philosophy, Fear and Trembling in Sunnydale, and Buffy Goes Dark, essays on the final two seasons of Buffy the Vampire Slayer on television. And also, I'm very excited about this, uh, editor on the upcoming Westworld and Philosophy, if you go looking for the truth, get the whole thing. James, you're a busy man, so thank you so much for joining me. How's it going? Oh, it's going great, and it's my pleasure. I always love talking about Buffy and Angel. Not as a couple. <laughs> Not as a couple. I don't get into that argument, but... Okay, all right. We'll 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 save the shipper stuff for later. Um, so uh, why don't you give the listeners a, a brief history of your history with Buffy? So when did you first uh, come across the show, and, and when did you first fall in love with it? Well, I, I mean, I first came across the show when it aired. Somebody told me I should watch it, who had seen a few episodes, and I was skeptical, but um, I popped in and started watching it, and then, you know, this is when you couldn't binge watch shows, so then it went into reruns, and I got to catch up on the first few episodes that I had missed, and I would say I was hooked more or less with Prophecy Girl, right, so. Excellent. Appropriate. <laughs> yes, that's why I wanted to do this particular cast right so um so you came in what like mid-season one or did you come in in season two the first, no mid-season one and the first episode i saw i'm trying to remember which one it was um well i used to know this um i don't know it was it was one of the good ones <laughs> i mean as opposed to some of the some of the first seasons a little spotty and, yeah but it was um it was a what's the one with um uh, uh, with the cheerleaders, uh, um, which what, what, blanking on this, yeah, that's the one. Right? Which yes. okay, which yes. Oh, so so you you weren't that late, like you. I think that's what the third episode, maybe. Could I, be. I, I can't remember. Know. I've literally just done podcasts for all these, and I can't remember where that falls. But it's uh that's pretty early in season one, so you weren't that far it behind. Was, it was fairly early, but I missed you know Welcome to the Hellmouth and all that. Yeah. And so 
you didn't know the full backstory, and so it was sort of. But but I mean, it was such a good standalone episode that it worked really well as an introduction. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, I need to get the spoiler warning out of the way. Uh, for if, if you're a new listener, for some reason, if this is your first episode, uh, conversations with dead people is not a typical rewatch and review podcast. We're going to be exploring the plots, characters, and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole. That means spoilers and lots of them. So I recommend if you haven't already watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the series all the way through at least once that you press pause on this podcast now and go do that. I guarantee you'll get so much more out of these discussions if you've actually seen the shows that we're discussing. So please go watch. We'll be waiting right here when you get back. And now with all of the business out of the way, James, if you're ready, let's go to work. Indeed. So tonight we're going to be talking about uh, the final two episodes of the first season, uh, 111, Out of Mind, Out of Sight and 112, the aforementioned Prophecy Girl. So, um, James, what did you think of these two episodes? Well, so, of course, in preparation, I rewatched them, and, um, you know, when I, well, I mean, so a couple of things stood out for me besides, besides the obvious uh, that I remembered. Um, and one of those things, I think, was the way in which well, especially with out of mind, out of sight, um, two things start happening, right? One is one is Joss Whedon tries something which is a really bad idea, I think, which is to try to make the show a little conspiracy theory theory ish, right? Um, at the end, and I think he, he realized that was a bad move. Um, but I also think the other thing that happens there and continues with Prophecy Girl is the um, integration of the the gradual integration of Cordelia into the into the mix of the uh, what will soon be called in season two the Scooby Gang, right? And so, so that really stood out to me this time around the the, the role of Cordelia, the, the the obvious having to get rid of any 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 love relationship between Xander and Buffy. Um, those kinds of plot functions seem to to really stand out as in, in addition to the story story themes, right? Yeah. Um, so out of mind, out of sight was, um, as has often been the case, if, if you at home have been playing along with me since the beginning of this podcast, uh, this is an off repeated refrain of mine that I had forgotten how good season one was. Um, my memories of season one tended to be that there were like one or two bright spots and the rest of it was pretty dismissible. Um, I would say it's the other way around. I would say there are, there are certainly episodes in season one that are forgettable and and probably should be forgotten but much more of season one is actually better than i remembered it and out of sight or see there it is i always try to correct the grammar of this title out of mind out of sight is one of those that uh i had forgotten enjoying as much as i did um i, I too was really impressed by it and did not remember it being as good as as it was on rewatching it this time yeah so um I've talked before about how many people have talked about how uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, particularly in the earlier seasons, um, leans pretty hard into metaphor. Um, like mm -hmm. they use they use all of these monsters and supernatural events as metaphors for teenage life, for high school, and and all that. Sometimes those metaphors are a little easier, at least for me, to nail down than other times. Um, 
and this one, the the whole metaphor of uh, the girl who becomes invisible because people treat her as if she were invisible. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. Saying it like that, it sounds pretty, you know, on the nose or whatever. But this is one of my preferred kind of metaphors from the first season. I, I really kind of like the idea, the the high concept behind this episode. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree that the the first season is is very metaphor heavy. Well, I mean, all of this, many of the seasons are metaphor heavy, but especially the first season with the high school as hell motif. Um, and this is just another aspect of that. Um, and I mean, it is it, it's a reality in high school. And while um, people don't go invisible usually, right? That's a supernatural element in this that series. we know of. That we know of, right? That we know of. This is true. <laughs> They, they don't they don't go around uh, you know hurting people by being invisible um, they do however sometimes have horrible things happen to them right um, they get depressed they you know they can commit suicide they can yeah I mean just all, all of those sorts of things could could have gone in real life in that direction whereas in the show they use the metaphor of just going invisible right um, um, so there's there's kind of, I, I want to get I want to get this out of the way right now. <laughs> Since, okay. okay. Um, I, there's kind of an ongoing problem that I have had with the series over the years, and I'm I'm using uh, this podcast as a way of addressing my my own personal issues. Um, uh, I think it's going to be interesting uh, using this podcast to kind of uh, check myself, basically. Um, uh, one of the one of the things that I maybe have felt is a little problematic about the series at times is the way that uh, sort of nerds, outsiders, whatever, are looked down upon or marginalized nearly as often by kind of our our heroes, our main cast, and the show itself um, as not. Uh, so, it, like, in fact, characters like that are frequently situated as the villains, or at least... Um, the antagonists or the the root of the initial problem or whatever, the monster of the week. Um, and not always in the most nuanced or subtle way, I would, I would say. Um, and so you mentioned Cordelia and I, I agree. This is, um, this episode is an early step in sort of the redemption of Cordelia Chase. Uh, but like even her dialogue when she's talking to Buffy about how she can be surrounded by people but still be completely alone, uh, you know, people only she's worried that people are only hanging out with her because she's popular, not because they like her. Um, I I love that. I love that stuff. I love the steps towards humanizing Cordy that are going on there. But I I wonder if it also brushes up just just a little bit against sort of letting her off the hook for what we find out was her pretty inhumane treatment of Marcy. Yes. Um, I, 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 I will concur, I think wholeheartedly with your, with your opening statement there that at times nerds are picked on, even though, um, I don't think there's a bigger nerd than Joss Whedon. So I don't know what kind of, um, issues he's trying to work out there either. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, I do think, you know, Cordy, Cordy throughout the early episodes of the series, right? along with Harmony and, and, and her other friends, right, are portrayed as mindless and um, superficial and self-absorbed and all of those sorts of things. And 
um, to, you know, I mean, again, I think, you know, oh, yeah, I mean, that, that, that conversation where Cordy reveals her insecurities is, is an important acknowledgement that, you know, she's a real, she's going to become a rounded character in the show, but is also, um, as you say, a little, a little easy to, um, a little too easy, right? Um, Cordy at some point probably should have, well, I mean, and, and it does, of course, in the second season and third season get made to suffer fairly substantially. Um, the other thing, of course, is that in this case, right, um, there's, there's, I mean, so, so when Joss Whedon often approaches nerds, the nerds are typically male. Mm-hmm. And w- this one, it wasn't obvious to me that she was especially nerdy, when you, as you mentioned it, right? I mean, she was an outsider. I mean, for some reason, people didn't see her, right? Teachers didn't see her. Friends couldn't remember her, whatever it was. or Even Willow and Xander couldn't. Yeah, even though remember. they had signed her yearbook, right? Yeah. And... Um, and so it, it's hard to, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what it was. Um, well, she plays flute. So I assume she was like a band nerd, maybe. Could be, could be, right? Yes. But, and that, 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 that's certainly not say as nerdy as, as Jonathan or Andrew get. Um, so, I, you know, I don't know. It was a little, it was a little, I think in, in, in the, ep- I, mean, I think the episode, while it has a really important point, it, it is a little spotty and it's, um, in its in its character motivation for 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 the audience to see why it is that she goes invisible, we just don't get enough backstory. Yeah. So, Professor, I want to uh, I want to get your take. I want to pick your brain on something here. I I'm often able to um, spot things like this in a show, but I'm not. Uh, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. I'm not always able to sort of parse what this stuff means. So I want to ask you about um, the classroom scenes. We get several classroom scenes in this episode in uh, Out of Mind, Out of Sight with um, with quotes up on the chalkboard. Well, actually, the episode begins and we're hearing the teacher uh, read Shylock's quote from The Merchant of Venice. Uh, if you prick us, do we not bleed? I feel like that one kind of speaks for itself. You know, if you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? I mean, that kind of speaks to the the theme of the episode, I guess. But then there are two quotes that we see, that we barely see on the chalkboard in the background. Um, and I'm just obsessive enough to pause and try to <laughs> read what these quotes are. The first one is a quote from Samuel Beckett's play Waiting for Godot. Uh, the uh, To every man his little cross till he dies and is forgotten. Um, I'm not 100% sure if there's a way of sort of uh, parsing that for what it means to this episode. I believe, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I believe that the that waiting for Godot is about the ambiguity and hopelessness of life. Maybe I think. I, well, yeah. Among among other things, it is certainly something about the 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 fact that an end never comes, right? And okay. so, so that that is, I think. I mean, um, I mean, I, I see. I, I would see that quote as a foreshadowing of of the way in which Buffy's going to be, you know not in fact the master's victim as prophesied, but instead is going to overcome the master. Right. Um, okay. 
Okay. And, and keep the show going on, right? Um, but it may also it may also speak to to a broader vision that Joss Whedon has about. Um, I mean, you know, he he himself has called himself uh, an angry atheist, right? And mm-hmm. um, and certainly Beckett is is no um, is not noted for his theistic orientation. So <laughs> there may there may be some relation there as well, right? To, okay. to remind us that. Indeed, we have to. Uh, well, I mean, I, I yeah, I mean, it, it's it's an interesting question that you raise. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's always possible these things yeah. are just thrown in the background for no. I, no, I don't believe that. No, because, <laughs> because you know, I saw something on Facebook over the weekend that that caught my attention, which I, you know, I, I mean, I was I was I don't remember which well, you know, who who posted it. I should have I should have screen capped it. Right. But it's also the case that the skirt that Buffy wears in Out of Sight, Out of Mind, Out of Sight, see, I did it too, mm-hmm. um, uh, looks exactly like the dress that she wears when she meets the first layer. And Oh, yes, I saw that too. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, that was truly astounding and cannot be coincidental, right? I just yeah. used to believe yeah. that's coincidental. Yeah. 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 Um, no, that's, that's absolutely true. Uh, so then the second quote that I noticed... Um, and there may have been more I, I, I missed, but uh, later on in, I believe it's the same classroom, uh, there's a quote from Steinbeck's Travels with Charlie in Search of America. And uh, the only part of the quote that I could see was, once a bum, always a bum. And I'm I'm really not familiar with this at all, so I had to look it up. And it's mm. I found a much, much larger <laughs> section yeah. uh, that that quote is pulled from. But I believe the the thing that it's pulled from is about um the author uh you know always feeling restless and always wanting something else from life and he's at every stage of life he's told well just wait till your next stage you know when he when he's a when he's a child he's told well wait till you're a teenager when he's a teenager he's told well just wait till you're you know a young man or whatever and how he never like age never brings with it the satisfaction or the the destination that he feels that it will interesting interesting um so i I, again i don't know if that applies specifically to this episode or if it's if it applies to you know the season or the series as a whole i'm not sure but i mean it may be a it may be a comment on 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 the invisible girl right or it may be a foreshadowing of of once again prophecy girl where where you know um buffy's 16 and she doesn't want to die right uh, you know but no those kinds of things I, I again i don't think they're accidental and i do think they eliminate um for those who are watching closely reward those who watch closely right um and uh and do you know either foreshadow or or comment somehow on the episode itself of course there's also all those all those um stickers that show up for for a band just because somebody on the crew liked widespread panic right? uh, <laughs> yeah and yeah. i never i never i couldn't figure out what it was for the longest time because i didn't know who widespread widespread panic was at the time and uh, so there are those kinds of sort of just coincidences right um, yeah but I, I don't think quotes on on a chalkboard are going to be coincidences all right well i uh, so i will for the rest of this uh the rest of the podcast, as I explore the entire series, I will be watching for quotes on on 
chalkboards. I think the secrets of Buffy are laid out in the the chalkboards in the background in every episode. That's my that's my theory. Well, and in the library, right? And in the uh, library. Yeah. I've I've tried so hard. Uh, like every time we get a half decent shot of the bookshelves behind Giles or whatever, mm-hmm. I've really tried to pick out like book titles, and I think I think some of them are just sort of maybe a bunch of them, but they're probably like, um, f- like book facades. Like I, I'm not a hundred percent sure I ever made out anything that was intelligibly a recognizable title, but <laughs> I always want the books behind Giles when he's giving some important bit of information to be significant. And I, I haven't quite been able to nail anything down yet, but yeah. yeah. But you, you don't speak Latin in front of him, and we know that. Absolutely. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, also in the classroom, I noticed Willow was wearing a Scooby-Doo t-shirt. I noticed that too. And I, I and then I went, oh, they haven't used that, right? And right. The reason. And so, it's not, so that's a little bit of foreshadowing too, right? Uh, yeah. Because it's not until the second season that they start calling themselves the Scooby gang. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I couldn't, uh, I cannot remember what episode that is, but I, I've, on this podcast, I keep referencing them as the Scooby gang. And then I have to be like, yeah, they're not. They're not the Scooby Gang yet. That's still coming, but I don't remember when. So yeah, I looked it up, and I I can't. It, it, I think it's in. Um, I think it might be in What's My Line. Okay, yeah, that's uh, definitely one of the the flags, one of the mile markers of the series is when they they finally officially dub themselves the Scooby Gang. Uh, oh, we get uh, this episode is significant. It's the first official meeting of Giles and Angel. That's right. Yes. Um, and I, I mean. It's a little problematic knowing where this relationship between the two of them goes uh, over the next few seasons. But at least in this first meeting, I loved these two together. I liked the interaction between these two. I thought so, too. Although I was I was struck. um, Well, I mean, you know, by the fact that, um, you know, that Giles knew what he was up against, namely a a vampire and angel quickly reassured him that he no longer ate people right mm-hmm. and so uh, or bit people um and but the other thing i was really struck by was the the word that giles used about you know the the central the central relationship between buffy and angel that, that's developing and will continue to develop in season two which is that it's maudlin. Yes, right? poetic, poetic in a maudlin sort of way. Poetic in a maudlin sort of way, right? Yeah, and it's like, wow, maudlin. You're, you're, I mean, it's kind of der- I mean, self-derogatory on, on Jazz's part, right? <laughs> um, I mean, it is obviously hokey, but it, at the same time, the way they flesh it out over those two seasons, it's, it's, a, real, it's a real relationship. And, it, and, of course, it is, in fact, tragic, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I was saying on an earlier episode that, um, like, my whole life I've been a hopeless romantic, and for for some re- like, the Buffy and Angel thing is the most hopeless romantic of hopeless romantic storylines. It is the star-crossed lovers, the doomed love mm-hmm. affair thing, and for some reason, like, I I had never, as a viewer, I had just never warmed up to that relationship. Like, you, you were you were trying to avoid the whole. Uh, shipper thing at the top of this show but i will just oh, tell yeah. i will just tell you i was never particularly a a, a bangel a buffy and angel uh shipper um on this revit like i've gone on now i'm i'm a huge fan of angel the series so i'm i'm a much right. bigger fan of the character of angel than i was 
maybe on my initial viewing of the series, but um, but it's also a very different character in Angel, right? Right, uh, right yeah. I mean, there's depths to it that you get the backstory and all, so much more in, in Angel than you do in Buffy. So yeah, um, I've also commented many times on the and will continue. So warning to my listeners, I will continue to comment on the. Uh, sort of inconsistent application of vampire biology that this series gives us. Yes, um, yes. Uh, so in this, in the Giles and Angel scene, we get the whole, um, you know, vampires cast no reflection thing, mm-hmm. um, which is just one more element of vampire lore that kind of comes and goes or is used inconsistently across the two series. Um, but in this particular instance, um, I love the way the scene played out and I love the way it tied into the whole invisible girl monster of the week thing with um with their their dialogue like giles says by all accounts it's a wonderful power to possess and angel's like oh i don't know looking in the mirror every day and seeing nothing there it's an overrated pleasure that's a great it's a great line and it speaks to the character uh, of angel well and i mean and it also might refer back to your your recognition of the godot quote right um because no one's ever coming there right, right. um and yeah so no, I thought that was a really, really brilliant scene between the two. And um, I guess if, if we are going to get into the, the the shipper thing, I will confess that, you know, I think seasons one and two, Buffy and Angel, most operatically tragic story ever. And I was totally and completely taken with them. Um, and and so there we go. I, I will put that out on the table. And, and, and you see why in this episode, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And, yeah. Um, oh, okay. Uh, this is kind of sticking with the whole vampire biology thing. <laughs> um, later on in the episode, when Angel gets to rescue Giles, Willow, and Xander from the boiler room, right? Um, and we get the whole vampires don't breathe thing. Uh, so this will tie into Prophecy Girl. Uh, they kind of pull this trick. Like I almost feel like this is a setup. They did it in this episode as a setup for. <laughs> the scene that's coming in prophecy girl, exactly. but I, but I feel like the vampires don't breathe thing is used better here. So I, I don't know if this is going to cause tension between us, James, but mm. um, the vampires don't breathe thing in this episode in, in uh, out of mind, out of sight uh, is um, that angel can breathe because obviously he speaks, which requires the exhalation of breath. So, mm vampires do breathe they just don't need to breathe so he can smell the gas but he he doesn't need to breathe so it's not going to affect him yeah um, i think that's uh, like that's all they ever needed to say on the subject i feel like that makes perfect sense also i mean obviously these vampire actors are played by or these vampires are played by actors and the actors breathe like <laughs> when they're standing yeah. in a scene you're you, you're watching them breathe so um, yeah, well, I just you say it. I mean, it, it is both a, a, a it's, it's both a setup for Prophecy Girl, but it's also inconsistent with what happens in Prophecy Girl, right? So. Yeah, yeah. So uh, to jump ahead briefly to Prophecy Girl and just talk about like that scene, we can talk more about it in a minute. But I just mentioned the fact that like that scene in Prophecy Girl plays out um, with he's unable, like Angel's not able to give Buffy CP- CPR because he has no breath. Now oh, I feel sure. like that, that makes that moment that makes for a wonderful, like dramatic melodramatic moment on screen um, because it allows uh, sort of plain Jane Xander to be the hero. Um, also gives him his opportunity to quote unquote kiss Buffy, but exactly. 
Um, but it's it's kind of spurious at best, I think, <laughs> given all the examples of angel breathing, um, uh, you know, across the series. Mm-hmm. Um, and the <laughs> so this is the thing I try not to do when I'm talking about these shows or or any show or movie or whatever that I'm reviewing. I try not to be, you know, I I like to consider myself a writer. This is how I would have did, done it. But uh, there is a part of me that's like. I kind of would have preferred to see that scene be that um, Xander provides the breath, but Angel has the physical strength necessary to do chest compressions on Buffy because Buffy's the slayer and her body is much tougher and and stronger than a normal human. So Mm. maybe Xander would not have been able to actually do chest compressions on her. And that would have gotten those two characters to like play their part. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. I like that. Anyways, that's that's the nitpicky me, I guess. Well, and you know, I mean, make the, I mean, I'm, I'm no expert on, you know, how how the productions of these shows go, but I mean, you know, was 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 just in the was was just in the room, as it were, when they were filming these scenes. He must have read the script, but was he there when he when they? When, I mean, he certainly wasn't Prophecy Girl, but was he in Out of Mind, Out of Sight? I don't know. Right. Um, uh, Joss Whedon is credited with the story for uh, Out of Mind, mm-hmm. Out of Sight, but Teleplay is, is uh, Ashley Gable and Thomas A. Swyden. Mm-hmm. So, and yeah, I don't know enough of the behind-the-scenes stuff to know how much of an on, uh, on-set presence Joss was uh, on episodes that like he wasn't directing or whatever. But um, yeah, I don't know. Anyways, or I, how closely also, he line-read the Teleplay, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But... Also, I think, uh, again, a lot of this stuff, like the show kind of crystallizes uh, and and settles into itself as it goes. And some of the stuff, particularly in season one, is a little uh, played a little loosey goosey with maybe how it would have been played if it had happened in a later season. Well, uh, right. Including including what I think is, you know, that very clunky ending where those two mysterious men take Marcy away and put her in with other invisible people. Right. And, yeah. you know, that, that seemed to intimate that the show might take an X-Files turn somewhere down the road and it never did. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I don't, it was just that I, I don't even know what that scene is doing in there. It's so bizarre. Right? <laughs> well, I, I have to confess. So I've developed something of a habit uh, on, on my other podcast, the avatar returns, my co-hosts and I have developed this habit of, uh, imagining all of the potential spin-off series that could come out mm. of these shows that that we watch or whatever these episodes. <laughs> and uh, I've continued that a little bit on this podcast last episode when Alexander Lester and I were lamenting the, the Sid, the demon hunting puppet series that could have been. Yeah. Oh um, yes. Yes. Um, like we both desperately want to see like Sid, <laughs> the demon hunting puppet. Uh, that would be a great show. Yes. I, I'm, I'm tempted to add the whole uh, the Invisible Teenage Assassin School to my list of like spin-off series that I wouldn't mind seeing but uh I take your point the Buffy itself although season in season 4 we get the initiative which is is maybe a little bit in the same vein maybe but it, not but quite it's as not X-Files-ish dealing, as I mean it, I guess it's dealing with 
robotics and, and artificial intelligence and things like that. But it's not, it's kind of a Westworldy thing, right? Um, yeah. yeah. But, but I mean, it also, like, the initiative also brings in the fact that the government is aware of some of this stuff. And, yes, yes. But, um, and it, yeah, you occasionally get those little intimations like that. But it, it, yeah, season four, I think there's a different metaphor at work in season four. And I'm not sure if I'm doing any of the season four episodes but with, with you, but I hope I am because some of those I really like. Um, We'll make that happen. Yeah. Um, I also love as much as the two weird FBI agents just popping in out of nowhere, (laughs) like as, as sort of out of place as and awkward and clumsy as that was in the episode. Um, and as, as glad as you slash we are that the series Buffy never like addressed the invisible assassin school again, it did give us like one of my favorite. Uh, so I, I've already talked about the chalkboard quotes that I'm in love mm-hmm. with. Um, the did you notice the textbook that they open in the in their like Invisible Assassin School? So they they turn to Chapter Eleven, which is Assassination and Infiltration, Case Example One: Radical Cult Leader as Intended Victim. So that's all cool. Oh yeah. But yeah. did you pay attention to what the actual text on the page is? No, I didn't. I will confess. It's the lyrics to uh, Happiness is a Warm Gun by the Beatles. Ah, how intriguing. It's okay. just straight up the lyrics, like written as if it's text in a in a textbook, which oh, is... That, that's, that's hilarious. I never thought to even look at that, right? So, it's yeah. bizarre. I'm, I'm, yeah, so I, mean, I feel I, like... I was writing on my iPad, so maybe, maybe it wasn't big <laughs> enough for me to notice, right? Uh, yeah. You. Well, I'm watching it on Hulu, which is not the best uh, transfer... Like it's not the no, best quality too, right? And yeah. So, but, um, anyways, so, and last thing I'd say about this episode is that, um, I think that's for too, right? Uh, happiness is a warm gun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know the drafts of thinking into uh, all the way to season six, but yeah. <laughs> no. Um, no, I've, we've, I've already talked on an earlier episode about how sort of dramatic it is in this series when guns come into play. Exactly. Like exactly. you don't see them very often. And when they show up, they're so jarring. Like you're used to your characters using crossbows and, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> and stakes. And so when a gun pops up, you're like, wow, that's really, it's really like grotesque almost. When Xander gets to be, to be military Xander, mm-hmm. it's so very odd, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, my last uh, sort of comment on this episode, I guess, would be just that it shares some thematic elements with uh, episode 318, Earshot, which we'll be talking oh, about yes. at some point. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe others. I was trying to I was trying to think of other things. Um, like in my notes here, I have a question mark next to uh, 716 Storyteller and uh, Angel... Uh, season one, episode twenty-one, blind date. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure if there were. If, I don't know what that note meant. I would have to go back and look and see. I think maybe in Storyteller they just reference Marcy, the invisible invisible girl. Maybe that was the only thing that happens there. I will confess I don't remember that, but I love that episode. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. All right. So. I, I think the you know the other thing that. That, that that I, I would I would say about this episode before we move on to Prophecy Girl is um, is the is you know I mean again the the way in which 
they had to to you know sort of de-infatuate Xander from Buffy, but also we see the beginning of the de-infatuation of Willow with Xander. Right? Yeah, and I think that's really important as well. Yeah, was that uh... when where he's rehearsing how to ask Buffy to the prom, right? Or or, or, is, or is that was that in the other episode? I th- the beginning think. Prophecy. I think that's in. Uh, I think that's in Prophecy Girl, actually. Okay. Okay. I, I'm merging the two in my head here. So. Um, no, that's fine. Why well, merge away? Um, you can transition, but yes, yeah. Um, for some reason, I thought there was a, a line of dialogue in, in Out of Mind, Out of Sight, where it's clear that Will is getting frustrated with helping Xander land a Buffy, right? Um, uh, well, yeah. I mean, that's a growing thing that happens, but I'm trying. To, I'm trying <laughs> to remember. Uh, if there was anything in, let me see, I've got some dialogue here, like quotes that I pulled out, maybe mm-hmm. something in there. Um, well, I was going to make a big deal out of Snyder's uh, line. There are no dead students here this week. <laughs> this week, yeah. <laughs> or whatever, love... which is a great line. But then, of course, we're merging these two episodes. And in the next, mm-hmm. in Prophecy Girl, there are plenty of dead students. Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, I guess I guess one more thing from that classroom, the all-important classroom from uh, out of mind, out of sight. Uh, Cordelia at one point, so they're t- I I can't quite tell what um, bit of literature they're discussing while they're doing this, but like uh, Cordelia is answering a teacher the teacher's question and says, just because the story is about him doesn't necessarily mean he's the hero, right? Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the teacher's like, well, so what do we call him? And Willis is the protagonist. And Xander's like, well, why can't he be both? I mean, he did some things that were pretty heroic. Um, I think that all applies to not only, like, this episode, but this season and this series as a whole. I think the, that those are questions, or that is a question, that's a concept that I certainly am going to revisit as the series continues. Yeah, yeah. So. I think the telling one, right? Um because they all get their chances to be heroes at various times, right? Um, and as they coalesce into into the Scooby Gang and into into you know a a um, chosen family as opposed to a, the, the families they were all born into, um, that that makes perfect sense that they could all be the protagonist, right? Um, yeah, everyone's the hero of their own story. Yeah. Um. Okay. Yeah, so let's merge into Prophecy Girl here, which is the first Joss-directed episode. I I had forgotten that we made it all the way to the end of the season before Joss ever put on his director's hat. I, yeah, I don't think I don't think they would let him because he hadn't had <laughs> enough experience, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, so, do you think if he'd had his way, he would have directed previ- earlier episodes? I would have assumed he would have directed the pilot, right? Um, uh-huh. Certainly, yeah. Which just reminds me of the wonderful, the, the wonderful like detail that uh, Charles Martin Smith was the director of the pilot of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which that is, is, that is yes, it's hilarious but, to me. Yes. Um. Yeah. So this is the big one. This is the one where, uh, as has been mentioned on this show previously, uh, season one was never. It was season two was never a guarantee. Um. Season one was a mid-season replacement, uh, so it was right. only it, it was a shortened season, and there was no guarantee that the show was going to get picked up. So 
Prophecy Girl had the potential, at least, to be a series finale as well, and it kind of plays that mm-hmm. way. I I don't know off the top of my head, maybe you do, if by the time they were filming this, if they had already gotten word that they would be coming back. Do you know? I can't imagine that they had, but I don't know, right? Okay. Um, because I, I I just don't know the filming dates, right? Um, yeah. The production opposed to the airing date. I know yeah. sometimes that happens on a show where they... Like as they're heading into production, they don't know, but then while they're filming, they find out, and maybe that affects how they film the episode. But yeah, I don't know if that played out here or not. They found out about that with Angel, right? Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah, and Thank I, I think. Yeah. Yes. Um, and they they did Dollhouse as well, right? Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, so Prophecy Girl certainly plays out uh, in such like it could have been a series finale. And l- let me just ask you. Let me. Let me do that horrible question of if this had been the series finale, what would you have thought? <laughs> like would Buffy, would be, we still be talking about Buffy 21 years later if we had only had these 12 episodes? You know, yeah. I mean, I was thinking about, I mean, that, that's a good question because I was reflecting, I, I've been forcing myself to, to watch a show that I want to like and just can't, which is Gotham. <laughs> and, and, and I've, I've put my finger on the problem, which is that it's 22 episodes, right? And uh-huh. we're, we're so used now to shows like Westworld or Mad Men or The Sopranos or something being, you know, 10 to 12 episodes a season. And you can do things narratively much different. And this really, this actually feels like one of those proto shows, right? Uh-huh. I think, you know, the great beginning, you find out what goes on, you see some adventures, and then you see this, you know, I mean, yeah, I think it could easily have been the end of the series and still been a satisfying 12 episode run, although a couple of the episodes a little spottier than others, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but this one is so, so strong and the ending is so beautiful that it's, you know, what it, I think it could, could have easily been just like the end of season five could easily have been the end of the show, right? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, it seemed to be written to be the end of the show. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like if uh, I think timing might have worked against it, like I, to answer my own question, I don't, yeah. I don't know if, if these 12 episodes had aired when they did, I don't know mm-hmm. necessarily if we'd be talking about it 21 years later, some of us might have been, I think the group would be much smaller. I feel like oh, I think there wouldn't have been the scholarship. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because I just don't know that, uh, the show would have gotten as much like replay and support. Uh, so not as many people would have been aware of it. I don't know, but yeah. Although I remember, I remember going to, you know, a fan convention, at the, you know, while it was airing and it was very clearly catching on right with fans. There were, there was already fanfic being written, mm-hmm. um, literally little, literally written. I mean, you know, printed as right. opposed yeah. to <laughs> the, the way fan fiction turned into, um, not zines, but online. Um, so there was already that going on because, again, even though there's only 12 episodes, it was over, you know, maybe 18 or 20 weeks that those 12 episodes aired because they did reruns. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, again, you know, a, 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 something we don't we don't do anymore except on mainstream, you know, the, the network television. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, so let's talk about why this episode is so amazing then. <laughs> yeah. What do you, what do you love about this episode? Like, what makes this a, a satisfying season and potentially series finale for you? Well, I mean, so I think you know. So at the end of the the the, the pilot episodes, right? You know, where 
Buffy, he talks about, you know, excessive not studying and, and Giles looks around and says the earth is doomed, right? Mm-hmm. And um, in this episode, right, and this is why I think it could have been self-contained, right? I mean, Buffy goes, we saved the world. I say we party, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that just, you know, we saved the world, right? Um, and so... So that's that's the theme of the show, right? Um, and it happens again and again, right? Um, there's all there's an op, there's, just like there's no dead kid this week. There may not be an apocalypse this week, right? But there are apocalypses, right? Um, <laughs> apocalypse. I can't. What is the most, yeah. What is the plural of apocalypse? Um, yeah. Uh, this episode. Um, even the pilot, uh, since the pilot was was split into two episodes, basically, um, this I feel like is the most almost uh, almost like made for TV movie ish mm-hmm. of the first mm-hmm. season. It just has such a compelling uh, beginning, middle, and end. Um, yeah. So much of the rest of season one. Um, even though I liked it on uh, on revisit more than I remembered, so much of season one was tied up with monster of the week kind of things. Whereas mm. Prophecy Girl feels like uh, a complete, al- almost standalone uh, story in its own right. And um, and even just watching it, it felt it, like it's no longer than any other episode. It's just a, a regular forty two minutes or whatever it is, but um, it still felt. Um, more important, I guess, weightier, which is appropriate given the subject matter. Well, right. I mean, but I think, I think one of the things that factors in there, I would say is that every character gets a moment as it were in the, in the episode, right. To, to shine. I mean, even, you know, even, even, well, I mean, yeah. So, so yeah, I think, I think that, I mean, it's just Joss at his best. Right. And, Mm. and when he's at his best, he's awfully good. Right. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. And there's obviously the significant differences. Like, like we said, this is Joss's first directing uh, in the series, and there have been great directors for the previous episodes. I'm not knocking any of them, but right. this is this show is like Joss's baby. Baby, these characters are are his characters, and there's a. a I can't remember the term. Anyways, there are a plethora of fantastic writers also involved in the show that, uh, that contribute to creating the stories and characters, but this is Joss's thing. And so this mm-hmm. is like his first chance to really, he wrote the episode, he directed the episode. Like he, I feel like he's controlling this episode all the way. And there's even this early in the series, there's a, a noticeable difference it's hard at this point to sort of define what the Joss stamp is and how it, how it's separate or uh, unique from the previous directors, but it's definitely mm-hmm. there. And, uh, well, I, you know, I, I, I think so. Right. I think there's a, I, and I don't know exactly how he, how he achieves it, but there's a way in which he, he films this episode in which the characters, even, even, I mean, even the appearance um, is, is sort of strikingly, um, I don't know, almost, almost, uh, hyper-realized. Mm-hmm. I wonder if there was a, a budget increase for this episode. Again, this is one of those detail. Or I if like... he 
or if he saves some money for it, right? Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I have like five. I have a, I have shelves of my library lined with with Buffy and and Whedon books. I'm sure the answer is in there somewhere. But yeah, I just, I just wonder if if he had a a larger budget to play with on this episode. But um, so you you mentioned earlier the Willow is starting to tire of Xander's crap, basically, and um, yeah, this is the episode where he finally makes his play for Buffy, and she has to turn him down. Um, mm-hmm. I I do want to note <laughs> again, um, Xander is a little bit of a problematic character for me. He becomes a sort of problematic character at times. I, is it notable, or am I just being hypersensitive? Is it notable that Xander is able, Xander of all people, is able to, I'll use air quotes bully that kid into giving up his seat on the bench just yes. by walking up and saying, leave. And the guy yeah. just grabs his books and leaves. Like who would have thought that Xander is capable of doing that? And I don't know, like that's almost an insignificant, like you almost don't even notice it because the moment that scene is all about him opening himself up to Buffy. But I noticed it. I noticed that Xander oh, no. had to play bully there for a second. I noticed it too, and it felt very out of character. And I, you know, I think there, in this episode, until until Xander manages to revive Buffy, which is his sort of redemption on the show, I think, right? It's in the episode, right? He's sort of mean to everybody, right? He's mean. Mm-hmm. He's 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 just cruel to to Willow, right? You want to go to the dance, and she goes, "What to watch? You wish you were with Buffy, right?" Um, yeah, I want to give a standing ovation to Willow for that moment. Yes, yes, yes. That was a like I said, that's this is where we start getting her, you know, to to not be infatuated with Xander anymore, and that seemed really important as a part of the as a part of the the of of, of if this were a complete season of making it feel right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this is the second time, <laughs> but you know what I mean. If it was the ending of this of the show, it would have felt right that she would have had to have done that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is the second time that I took note of Jenny Callender sort of appearing on the scene uh, at a very coincident moment. In this, in this instance, it's when uh, Giles is making a phone call to Angel. We don't necessarily know that at the time, but he's on the phone with right. Angel, and Jenny Callender kind of appears in the scene behind him. Um, and talks about that mysterious... For all the stuff she's been picking up, right? And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cat gave birth to a litter of snakes. Yeah. Whisper Lake boiled. I, I want to hear the story of the kid whose eyes are facing inward. That's pretty gruesome. Yeah. But, um, and some monk emailing me, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Brother Luke or whatever his name was. I can't mm-hmm. remember. Lucas, maybe. Uh, no, I just thought it was... Um, I, I feel like it had to... Uh, again, I don't know how much of this he had planned out in advance. Like, I feel like Jenny Callender was not meant to. My cat, jeez. I feel like uh, Jenny Callender wasn't meant to be an ongoing character. So uh, maybe this is all really just coincidence. But both times, or, or twice now in season one, Jenny Callender pops up um, at a at a story significant moment involving angel. And as we will discover in the series ahead of us, she, her story is intimately tied to the story of angel. So 
I just noticed yeah. both of those instances. Yeah, and again, whether that was foreshadowing or or was always in Jasta's mind, or I, who knows, right? Yeah. Um, uh, so the the sixteen, I'm sixteen years old. I don't want to die. Scene. We got to talk about that one. Yes. Well, it's hard to talk about without tearing up, right? Um, yeah. It is so well played by by Sarah Michelle Gellar. I mean, that's you know. It, it's just it's heartbreaking right and um and then she wants to quit right mm-hmm. and she can't right? i mean as the series goes forward we're going to get sarah michelle geller is going to get plenty more opportunities to demonstrate like her her acting range and her right. ability to cry on command or whatever we we get to see a lot of examples of this going forward but i i would say even compared to the like the heightened drama and the greater stakes of things that are coming in future seasons uh, this is a watermark for the show i mean this is like the one of the most powerful emotional moments that uh that geller gets to pull off on camera so yeah i mean so much of her of her acting in in the previous episodes of this season um were um you know, we're, we're her ability to, I mean, we're, we're located in her ability to both be, you know, a physical presence and show that she was smart underneath, but quippy on the outside. And I mean, she was really good at doing that um, in a way that I think many actresses couldn't have pulled off. But yeah, that the acting in that scene and the way, I, I don't know how Joss got that out of her. I mean, I guess it was in her, but I mean, we hadn't seen anything like that before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she'd been funny and quippy, and there'd also been to to go back to that word maudlin. There'd also been like yeah. sort of the maudlin moments and everything. And I, I, I'm sure she's cried in season one. I can't off the top of my head. I can't remember, but I, I know we've seen her shed tears. But yeah, this is absolutely the the moment when like she comes into her own. And uh, no matter how <laughs> sort of cynical I I am about the character of Buffy Summers. I, I teared up watching the scene. It's super powerful. It's very emotional. I, uh, I, I totally agree. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's where I think, you know, too, she feels, um, it, it, you know, somehow for me anyway, the scene is the one where she feels what later on in the series, she will flippantly describe as the, as the burden of slayerhood. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can really see it in her and you can feel it and it's palpable and that, and that, and, and before that, I don't think we'd really gotten that, right. Um, we'd gotten the chosen and, you know, all, all that sort of thing, but we hadn't seen her really feel the burden of being a slayer and what it meant. Um, and that yeah. realization that meant she had to die at 16. You know, mm-hmm. It's just, it's just an amazing scene. Brilliantly written, brilliantly directed and brilliantly acted. Agree. Yeah, we'll really start to see the uh, her playing out the whole uh, pressure of being the chosen one, like as season two kicks off. Yes. Uh, we'll yeah. get to see the repercussions of the stuff that's gone down this season, and particularly in this episode. Um, but um, also, I feel like this episode gives us the, our first like genuinely real and affecting dialogue moment between Buffy and Joyce. Joyce has yeah. been Joyce has been a sticking yeah. point for me and I think most of my guests up to this point. Um, um no 
that when I when I was referring to you know everybody gets a moment in this in this episode is what makes it so so good. It, one of the things I was thinking about was Joyce gets a good moment. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she and those are few and far between for her. <laughs> exactly, there, there aren't very many of them, and at least at least in season one. And so, um, no, so, so I agree. Right, Joyce is great in this episode. That that one scene, right? Yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> There's, there's hope for Joyce yet. <laughs> mm. um, to continue my tradition of uh, calling out like what some might consider trivial little details, uh, we don't get any chalkboard quotes in this episode that I noticed, but we do get a cartoon playing in the AV room. Um, ah. Which, so I had to research that because I just don't believe that it, that <laughs> things don't have meaning. So the. Uh, the cartoon that's playing in the AV room when uh, Cordy and Willow find all of the bodies is the mm-hmm. Mary Melodies short Pigs in a Polka, directed by Friss Freeling. And the significant details of that, uh, it features two irresponsible little pigs dancing about and mocking the big bad wolf. And of course, eventually Big Bad is going to be adopted by the show as a term to refer to the primary mm-hmm. villain of the season. Mm-hmm. Um, also, in that cartoon the wolf goes on to disguise himself as a gypsy in order to uh get in with the pigs okay um and yeah well i guess that was it i guess that was all i I had to say about the cartoon but no that's that's i mean again i i mean i recognized that it was a mary melodies thing but i didn't know that i didn't i didn't watch it again and so um there you go. I mean, is there is there a Jenny calendar foreshadowing going on there? Right? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I don't know. That is one of those ridiculously tiny little details that, on the one hand, you're like, of course that's a coincidence, but on the other, I'm like, oh, it's so it's so significant though. It had to be deliberate. Um, it's pro- it probably wasn't deliberate. Who knows? Um, but they could have put anything up there, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 sometimes, I mean, well, well. You know, there's 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 something in literary theory known as the intentional fallacy. Sometimes, sometimes directors know what they're doing, right? And <laughs> I wouldn't put it past Josh to know what he was doing there if he'd already started thinking it. So he must have. I mean, yeah, your TV show, you must be thinking about how you're going to continue it. And yeah. he may, you know, he may well have already had this plot line ready for Jenny, right? Uh, of course, there's also the fact that that's one of uh, the Merry Melodies that happens to be in uh, public domain. <laughs> The, copy, uh, well, that, the copyright yeah, hadn't been renewed on uh, that, so... Yeah, budget's not that big, I guess, right? But. Yeah. Um, also, I think it's worth noting that the the whole AV room, like, murder that happens, mm-hmm. this is, like, the first time Joyce seems to acknowledge that something terrible is going on at the school. <laughs> like, yeah. so much other death and mayhem have occurred at this school, and Joyce... Joyce and and everybody, all the adults, but like I'm gonna single out Joyce here, seems so patently oblivious to it. Yeah. And in this one, she runs up into the room uh, to get Buffy and say, "There's there's a news report on TV." Um, and of course, it gives Willow a chance to. It gives um, Alyssa, Allison Hannigan a a chance to emote and act mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. help Buffy find her empathy or whatever, like give her a reason to actually put on her leather jacket over her fancy prom dress and go face her doom. Exactly. Which is a great look, by the way. I love that leather jacket over the dress. That's 
Well, the, the I mean, yeah, the dress is a statement. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Um, interesting that Giles has Angel's phone number and Xander knows where he lives. Yeah, yeah. They never they don't explain that in the series, right? How would they have known that, right? No. Um, but whatever. Well, yeah. Sometimes you just have to tell the story you're stuff you're telling and forget about some of the details. Mm-hmm. Cord- Cordelia, past driver's ed apparently. Yes. Yeah. Um, we, and we so rarely see people driving in this show, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. So that was really interesting too. So. Maybe it's because the one time we get to see them drive, they drive into the damn building. Well, there is that. Yes. <laughs> that's that's another thing. There is a ton of structural damage that happens to uh, the school, and in particular the library. We'll, we'll get to what happens to the library but right. it it gets torn up man the library is messed up in this episode and i i just mm-hmm. i just want to comment when season two kicks off there's a ton of reconstruction that has happened like there's barely well there there's no hint of the damage that we see in this episode so obviously like the cleanup crew the the construction people in sunnydale are making a killing maybe literally well, considering they're yeah. low in the hell mouth Yes, well, I mean, it's like the rebuilding of Sunnydale after season five, right? Uh, yeah. At Sunnydale High, season yeah. five, so. Yeah. Um, oh, I want to ask you. Um, so, we already talked about the whole, well, we, we brushed on uh, mm. the whole Buffy faces the master and, and dies. Um if if you want to talk more about that, because we didn't really talk about her facing against the master, I was just talking about Xander bringing her back to life. Um, right, right. Uh, I, I've seen I've seen people cite this as like the first time that Buffy and the master meet, which I, I guess technically that is true. But we did in Nightmares, we did get two different scenes in that episode where she, quote unquote, meets the master. Right. Uh, right. And and there, I guess there's some debate about whether those nightmares are realistic enough that that uh, like they were aware of each other or not, but, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I, this is officially the first meeting of Buffy and the master, which is probably for the best because uh, you know, you get that, that tension and that uh, the build up to that. If she'd bumped into him every other episode over the season, they would have had to come up with reasons why she didn't just kick his ass right away. (laughs) And uh, yeah, and also like the the drama of this moment would have been been diminished. So, and and the the whole notion of of this being prophesied, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, so yes, I mean, she was going to have to come face. Oh, and again, this is this is part of the metaphorical structure of the of the show, right? I mean, you've got you've got to face your demons, right? And here she's externally facing a demon. Um, in the way that Willow has to internally face a demon in season six, right? Mm-hmm. Um, oh, so, well, so the... I'm sorry, you mentioned facing our inner demons, and I just wanted to point out that uh, I think this is the episode where um, Cordelia is like, they're standing in the hallway and she's just talking out loud about how, oh no, maybe that's season two. Maybe that ha- doesn't happen until season two, where Willow specifically tries to brush it off as saying, oh, no, our inner demons. We fought our inner demons. I think that comes next uh, season. Uh, okay. Yeah, I see. I don't remember it in this episode, right? Uh, oh, well. Um, yeah, all right. I'm sorry. So continue. She's facing her demons. Oh, no. I mean, but, I mean, so, I mean, I mean, there's, there's this thread of fate running through, right? And, I mean, 
you know, it, it gets fulfilled. The prophecy gets fulfilled, right? In in one way, right? In that Buffy dies, mm-hmm. and then in another way that it doesn't actually destroy the world. The Hellmouth doesn't open, right? Um, just get a lot of destruction. Um, okay, well, let's talk about the Hellmouth then. Oh wait, yeah. no, no. First, I want to ask because so he so he kills her. The master kills her, mm-hmm. technically. Um, and then when when uh, Xander brings her back. Her first line is, I feel different. Now, my memory of details in upcoming seasons is not what it should be. So tell me, is that ever elaborated on um, the the idea that she is? Now, I know that's a major point in season six, but that applies <laughs> specifically to season six and what happens right. there. But like do they specifically ever address the notion that she feels different having died? Like we can, I mean, I can posit what that means, but I can't remember if the show ever goes into it. Um, well, I think, well, well, I mean, certainly in season six, it, six, it does. Right. Um, but I'm trying to think, you know, there's, I mean, I guess, you know, I read uh, or heard that line, ambiguously right um so um does she feel different because of having died or does she have does she feel her power in a different way because the prophecy didn't come through right Right. and and that certainly gets addressed um you know that she feels stronger um yeah no she says she specifically says i feel strong yeah and and then, of course, gets explored very well in season three with, with when, when Faith shows up, right? Yeah. And um, and things things go awry. Um, but yeah, so I, I guess I, I I heard the line to refer more to a physical feeling than an inner feeling. So I like your insight there, and you'll now start thinking about it. Yeah, I just uh, again in the moment that it was written and portrayed on camera, I, I'm not. I don't know if this is what it meant, but now with my, my spotty memory of what's coming up, I kind of read that line as she feels different because she's technically now removed from the Slayer line. Well, and she, and then and she says it's been a really weird day, right? Well, I yeah, mean, yeah. I, it has been a really weird day. And yeah. then, then Willow's response to finding out that Buffy died oh, harsh, right? I mean, what kind <laughs> of a response is that? Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Now I, I keep, I keep alluding to it and then backing us off. So let's talk about, let's talk about the Hellmouth because I had on my rewatch of this, um, I was kind of floored. I had literally zero memory of the goofy rubber three headed slime monster, the Hellmouth uh, beast. I had forgotten it too, right? Yes. Um, um, I obviously had blocked that from my memory, uh, for good reason, I think. Yeah. Because that was pretty awful. Um, I mean, the, this season has struggled with makeup effects. I've commented that Mm -hmm. I feel like the master's makeup, uh, has been pretty much spot on from the beginning, but like just the incidental vampire makeup has been pretty bad, uh, in, in many instances. So like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not really going to knock the show. It doesn't lessen the episode for me that it's a like high school production of little shop of horrors there in the library Mm -hmm. at the end. But it was, it was uh, like a standout in terms of like bad, 
yes. makeup and rubber effects. But I, yeah, I had completely forgotten that that even happened. I remembered like the big event of this episode was that the master is now walking the city, but uh, he doesn't even do that. He just goes out on the roof and then gets his butt kicked. Yes. Yes. The, uh, his world, right? Uh, yeah. And then Buffy shows up and, but you were destined to die. It was written. Right. Um, and, and she has a great line. I flunked the written, right. Um, yeah. Yeah. but, but I mean, more to the point, she did die. Right. Um, and in that moment, anyway, she seems to be denying it, right. Um, to herself, I think. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and then I have no idea what fruit punch mouth means. Right. Um, I mean, I, I took the fruit punch mouth thing to be because like his, like his lips and his mouth are stained red and you know, when you drink a lot of fruit punch or whatever, your tongue turns red. I, I guess it's just such a bizarre reference to me. I, I yeah, never, I, yeah. And I love uh, the fact that he didn't get it either. He was completely. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then, you know, and she does punch him in the mouth and he falls down. Right. But you know, so. Um. And uh, interesting that, he is the only certainly at this point he's the only vampire that we've seen uh like when when he dusts some of him is left behind mm-hmm. um i can't remember i don't think that ever happens again um no and i don't know if that's given his status as the master uh-huh. um or if it's because Again, Joss is leaving open in his mind the beginning of season two, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, now, I mean, again, here's another thing where maybe you, your memory of details will help us out here, but I can't remember. I took the fact that he's the master, he's been imprisoned, like he's he's clearly the, the big bad, even though they don't call him that yet. And when he dies, his skeleton remains. I... I sort of filled in the gaps on that because the, at least at this point in the show, they don't explain it, but I filled no. in the gaps to mean that like, he is so much older. Like the reason his, he's so com- looks completely different from the other vampires uh, is he is so much older and, and more like powerful and seasoned than any of the other vampires we ever meet that he doesn't dust all the way when he dies. Um, and yet Dracula does. But, well, and that was my question. I feel yeah. like as the series goes forward, we eventually meet vampires that are older and more powerful than the master was. And, and when they dust, they just dust. So, yeah, I don't know. Well, even, even, yeah, I mean, maybe, Andrew. maybe over the years, the master did something, had a magic ring or whatever that, that guaranteed yeah. if he, if he ever died, that he would get a second Drink, chance or something. Drink enough sacrificial blood. I don't know. Right? Yeah. Um, Oh, maybe it's that he fed on the Slayer. I don't know. Oh, that could be, right? Yes. Yeah. See, and, and, and that goes back to the I feel different thing, too, which I always sort of assumed was, you know, that there was some, um, you know, some sort of some sort of resonance of the Master than in Buffy, right? Um, mm-hmm. Although then it gets explained very differently as the series goes on of where the darkness in Buffy comes from. But, yeah. I feel like there's a line uh, and I can't remember what my, how I tracked this when I was first watching the show. So I I don't remember thinking, Oh, 
uh, is the Slayer going to be part vampire from now on? Um, right, right. Even though the series has already set up at this point that that's not how you become a vampire. It takes more than that, but it's a whole sucking thing, as Buffy explains. Exactly. Um, but I feel like in at some point in season two, early in season two, maybe even the first episode of season two, there's... Uh, yeah, I think because it's when she was bad, when Buffy is is on her worst behavior. Right. Uh, I think Willow offers the possibility that uh, she's be that Buffy's behaving strangely because uh, maybe when she faced the master, there was some sort of transference of evil between them mm-hmm. or something like that. Like maybe she was affected by that. Um, yeah, I wonder is if that post traumatic stress disorder. Right, right. right yeah. yeah, I wonder if that was an idea that the that Joss and the the show were kind of setting up as a possibility that something about being fed off by the master and, and just her whole encounter with the master um, mm-hmm. had somehow tainted her. And like you yeah. said, we, we find out that's not actually what's going on, but no, but, but no, I think they were toying with, I mean, it seemed like an idea they were toying with and decided not to go with. Yeah. I want to, I want to, I mean, so, uh, you know, thinking about the Hellmouth as as you were, as you were earlier, right. I wanted to, to say that you know what in my in my watching of the series right um through through season five right um i took the hellmouth to be i mean you know i mean I didn't think a lot about I, mean, I guess i did actually think a lot about the theology of the show or the theological implications of the show but i mean you know i just thought of it as a you know you know just just a place where monsters lived and it didn't ever occur to me that there was a heaven, right? Until uh-huh. season six, right? Um, because they never talk that way, right? Um, right. But they do talk about the Hellmouth, but I always took it not to be hell, right? Um, and it doesn't seem quite like hell, right? Um, and there's more than one of them. And yeah, so, I mean, the show starts referring to hell dimensions, too, at some point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, an angel, of course, really goes there, but... I mean, in in this in in the Angel series, right? Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, but but I, but I'm just curious. I mean, it, it's interesting that they called it the Hellmouth. Um, it it's, it just strikes me as interesting. They could have called it many other things, but they called it the Hellmouth, and um, and I don't you know I don't know when it the idea for just that there might be a heaven came into the picture, right? Um, because there's no there's no foreshadowing of that really until Buffy comes back from the from season five, right? Yeah, there's not. Uh, I can't remember an awful lot of overt references to, um, like Christianity. I mean, obviously crosses are all over the place. Yeah, um, note this out, religion freaky, right? Mm. <laughs> yes, yes, um, and. Uh, um, in I Robot You Jane, right. like I, I don't remember if the episode references it, but the whatever that demon's name was that I can't remember, it was actually a biblical name. Um, and then in this episode, obviously, um, I think it was Prophecy Girl, where uh, Giles actually quotes a verse from the Bible. That's right. Yes. Um, yeah. But yeah, those are all. All of that stuff is like almost sort of incidental like there's not they they don't place an awful lot of significance on that quote from the bible other than the fact that um well yeah it seems like that's probably what's going on here um yeah i I think it i I just looked it up it's moloch who is the uh, the demon in the 
in an iRobot Eugene, right? Um, which was written by the uh, the same people who wrote um, Out of Mind, Out of Sight. Oh, okay, right on. Mm. Um, yeah, I feel like uh, when I was talking about that episode that I had looked it up, and Moloch was a a biblical. Oh, name. definitely. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's from the Book of Revelation. Okay, well, in, that would be the, that would be appropriate. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I don't think it is. I, I know it is from the Book of Revelation. So, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you're right. I don't think heaven as a concept is ever um, really touched upon until season six. No, no. So, spoiler for uh, for new viewers, if you're listening along and and waiting impatiently for the heavenly host to show up, that obviously is not going to happen for a little while on the series. So, um, okay. Well, I think maybe that we hit on everything I wanted to talk about. Was there more that you had for us? Um, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I think the, the major things that I saw were, were, you know, we, we, we discussed sufficiently. Um, like I said, I think, you know, in, in, in summation, I would say uh, that, that, you know, this episode accomplished what it needed to do was turn, you know, a good, well-written, mostly somewhat campy sometimes, somewhat serious sometimes show into uh, what it became. And that very, very impressive to be able to do that at the end of, uh, end of the first season, to get that kind of gravitas. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember what the weight is, or excuse me, was between the end of season one and when uh season two premiered actually it was it was a very long summer i remember that so prophecy girl aired originally on june 2nd 1997 i I think probably october before before maybe september but i think maybe even october because of the world series i just have a vague memory of this i don't Uh, i'd have the episode guide right and the back of uh, september 15th so when she was bad the first episode of season two comes back september 15th so I just remember it being a long summer waiting to see what they were going to do next, right? Because that episode had such a powerful impact as a season ender, right? You know? Yeah. Yeah, so that was, man, like you said earlier in the episode, this is back when you couldn't binge shows. I don't even know what You the... could not, and they did reruns right at the most crucial moment, right? And, yeah. Oh, man, those were the days. The sweeps weeks, you know? Yeah. Um, and... And then they would go on hiatus, and it was oh, not that episode again, right? Um, <laughs> I'd still watch it. I'd still watch the reruns, but you know, yeah. So, and then, of course, I, I mean, they. I, you know, I started videotaping them, obviously, and talk about old technology. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but yeah, no, it, yeah, there was, it was, yeah, those, those summer weights were were tough. Yeah. Yeah. And when she was bad is such a good episode. I think it's totally underrated. I think this 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 meme that goes around in in people's heads that uh, the season openers are typically not very good. I've never agreed with that. And so, is that a meme? Uh, is that a thing? It is a thing. Right? Wow. Uh, yeah, a lot of people think that the opening episodes of most seasons are really kind of clunky, right? Um, and huh. they are a little clunky sometimes because you have to get the characters back together somehow and everything, but. I know there's a, I mean, Anne gets a lot of, comes in for a lot of bad press and I love yeah, Anne, right? Yeah. Um, so it was, it was what motivated me to write on Buffy in the first place. So, yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess 
I, I don't agree with that, but I guess I see what that is. Yeah, the, I mean, yeah, the, the season finale, the season, season finales of Buffy are usually pretty darn spectacular, and so well, yeah, yeah. I, I guess it is a little hard to pick up with a new storyline following off of that, but yeah, well, especially as as it, as the mythology gets thicker and thicker and thicker, mm-hmm. and more more complex. Yeah. Okay. Well. Uh, yeah been fun paul yeah james thank you so much for agreeing to do this and uh i don't have the schedule in front of me but i know that i've got you down for other episodes um and obviously you're welcome back anytime so yeah <laughs> we can look at the one. list and see what you've signed up for but if there's anything if there are any specific things that you want to talk about just let me know and we'll we'll see what we can do about arranging the schedule so Sounds good. Uh, I always give my guests a chance to uh, plug themselves at the end if you would like. So um, if there are any ways that you want fans to stalk you online or if you want to say some words about uh, your upcoming projects, now's the time. Um, uh, I guess I really don't have a lot to plug. Um, I I will say that I have uh, academic website. You can find it off of my faculty homepage at Marquette. It is um, somewhat notable for being rather buffy heavy in terms of how I structured the website. Um, I use a lot of quotes from the series. People find it humorous. Um, so <laughs> your, your listeners might want to check out my website, not to see my accomplishments, but to see the quotes I picked for each of the sections of the, uh, of the website. Okay, I'll include that in the show notes if you'll share that with me. Yeah, sure. Um, and then uh, mentioned at the top of the show, but obviously Westworld and Philosophy. And West Westworld and Philosophy coming out. And, of course, copies of Buffy and Philosophy still out there available in your used bookstores near you. Yes. in So I mentioned on an earlier show that uh, in the show notes attached to these episodes when I release them, I'm including something called this very cleverly titled the library, which will be yep. linked to um, the relevant books that are, that my guests have either written or that we reference while we're talking about the episodes. And I've set up an Amazon affiliate. If it is still working, if I set it up properly and if it's still working, what that means is uh, in the show notes, you see a link to, Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Philosophy, or I will also include the link to Westworld and Philosophy. Um, If you click on that, it'll take you to the site on Amazon. Uh, If you buy it through that link, it costs you nothing extra. It just pulls a couple pennies out of Amazon's pocket and drops them into my virtual tip jar. That's all it's there for. Um, But yeah, I will. I am am pretty sure. I I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that Buffy and Philosophy is out of print at this point, right? Um, Is it? I think I think so. I, because, I mean, good grief! That was volume I think volume three or four of that series, which must now be up into the over a hundred volumes, right? Um, and um, I think I think the Buffy one's long out of print. Um, but it's, like I said, that's why I made the joke about used bookstores. I see it in used bookstores all the time, right? Um, um, I just followed my own my own link in the show notes. Uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Philosophy: Fear and Trembling in Sunnydale. Excellent. Uh, and it is nine ninety nine on Kindle, twenty two fifteen in paperback. That's expensive. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so it, it, it didn't cost that much originally. I know that. Well, this may—I I can't quite tell. The paperback it might be from like third party <laughs> vendors. I don't know if that's directly from Amazon, but it is available on Kindle for nine ninety nine. So well, that's good. Okay, so they kept it in ebook print anyway. So. Yeah. So which of course didn't exist when I wrote the book. So there we go. 
Uh, yeah. More edited. Right. So yeah. Yeah. So okay. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I will send you too, just just for for your your reference, right? Um, some of the other books that I've written about Buffy in that um, that you might not know about. So. Okay. Yeah. And I'll I'll add those into the library as well. So. Uh, everybody at home, thank you very much for listening. You can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website conswithdead.com, or you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. Uh, and while you're there, please rate us or write us a review. It turns out uh, there are a couple of people that beat me to the punch on this whole Buffy podcast thing. Uh, nobody bothered to tell me. <laughs> um, so any kind words that you could spare... Uh, would really help us stand out from the crowd. Uh, if you've got questions for me or any of my guests, or if you just like to share your thoughts on anything we've discussed, please join the conversation. You can drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com, follow us on Twitter at conswithdead, or reach out to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash conswithdead, because I just had to use that name everywhere. We do have a Facebook group. Um, I'm still learning how to use Facebook groups, but it is there. And because uh, I can't say the word conversations nearly enough, the Facebook group is called Conversations with Conversations with Dead People, <laughs> just to be extra confusing. Um, my hope is that the Facebook group is where these uh, conversations that we start on the podcast will continue with a, a larger group. So join us there. Um, next, we're going to kick off season two as Michael Adams, author of Slayer Slang, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer lexicon, joins me to get all wordy about episodes 201, When She Was Bad, and 202, Some Assembly Required. So until then, grr arg, everybody. Grr arg. She's not a girl who misses much. Oh, yeah. With the touch of the velvet hand Like a lizard on a windowpane The man in the crowd With the multicolored mirrors On his hobnail boots Lying with his eyes While his hands are busy Working overtime A soap impression of his wife Which he ate and donated To the National Trust 